This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. The Sunday before Easter, known as Palm Sunday, marks the beginning of what Christians have long called Holy Week. I mean, a long time, like fourth century. Holy Week consists of the six days that lead up to Easter, where we remember the significant events in the final days of our Lord on earth. On Palm Sunday, Jesus was gladly welcomed into Jerusalem, seated on a donkey. On Monday, he turned over the tables of greedy business owners out of his desire to restore the worship of God uh, to be happening alone in the temple. On Tuesday, he uh, walked with his friends to the Mount of Olives and told of the day of his return. On Wednesday, we have no, no, no idea what happened on Wednesday. But while Judas was quietly planning his betrayal, Jesus was patiently waiting for the events that would soon begin. On Thursday, the Lord gathered his disciples in the upper room where he washed their feet as an expression of humility and service. They shared together that night bread and wine what we now call the Lord's Supper, as Jesus taught them of the new covenant that he was about to make in his body and the spilling of his blood. That was also the night he was betrayed, first by Judas Iscariot, then by Peter the Rock. Friday held the final hours of our Savior's life as he was falsely accused, tried, Condemned, mocked, beaten, and eventually sentenced to suffer crucifixion. The path that led to Jerusalem was a one-way road. On Palm Sunday, the crowds welcomed him, singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And on Good Friday, he was sent to his death with the crowds howling, crucify him, crucify him. So as we mark the beginning of Holy Week today, we will turn the page of the calendar to the events that transpired on Good Friday. Okay, these final hours are filled with vivid scenes that are forever fixed in our memory. Jesus standing before Pilate like a lamb led to the slaughter. The militant guards ruthlessly beating our Savior within inches of murder. Jesus draped with a purple robe while a crown of thorns is pressed onto his brow as an act of mockery. A bystander named Simon who's called upon to carry the cross of Christ because he was too feeble to do it himself. The sound of clanging nails driving through the Savior's hands and feet, fastening his body to a rough piece of timber. 
And still with every step toward the cross, the eternal plan of God unfolds. In every moment of this day, we see the love of God on display. In every small experience of suffering, Jesus endured to shoulder the sins of God's people. Remarkable scenes. Yet this morning, what I want us to do is not so much focus our attention on the scenes of Good Friday, but fix our thoughts on the man that they point to. Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, uh, the carpenter from Nazareth, the King of Heaven, the eternal Word and the suffering servant. My aim in this sermon is to magnify the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ and to allow our hearts to see Him again. I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts would see Him freshly. In Luke 23, 32 through 43, we behold the beauty of the final scene of Christ's life on earth as he is lifted up on a cross. The King of Kings hangs between two other crosses that hold common criminals, while at the same time religious leaders gather below to mock and scoff him. With every verse that passes, Luke upholds Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises from the Old Testament, while at the same time demonstrates the heart of Christ to save sinners. Even in the final moments before his death, Jesus grabs one more person to take with him to the paradise of eternal life. So I've entitled our sermon, The Man on the Middle Cross, because I want us to think together of the importance of the one who died between thieves during that holy week so many years ago and what his death means to us today. There are two truths that shape our outline. The man on the middle cross is first the promised one of old, which we'll see in verses 32 to 38. And second, he is the saving son of God, verses 39 to 42. Before we stand and read from Scripture, here's my question that I want every person within range of my voice to hear. Who is the man on the middle cross to you? Who is the man on the middle cross to you? Would you stand with me? Let's read together. Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. 
One of the criminals who were hanged railed against him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Two truths. The first truth I want to place before us this morning is that the man on the middle cross is the promised one of old. Of all four gospel writers, the gospels, if you're new to the Bible, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And out of those four, Matthew is the one who uses the most Old Testament quotations in his account of Christ. But Luke seems to borrow Matthew's pen here for a moment as he intentionally packs several Old Testament references into the small suitcase of this handful of verses. By using these passages, what he wants us to see and understand, and what he wants us to believe is that Jesus is the promise kept of all of God's promises made. Jesus is the promise kept of all of God's promises made. Luke highlights that Jesus was led away with two criminals, verses 32-33. Jesus doesn't walk this lonely road to Calvary alone or with his beloved disciples either. The eleven are either scattered away or they're cowering in the distance. Instead, Jesus takes his final walk to the cross with two lawbreakers. Just as the prophet Isaiah had said Long before. Isaiah chapter 53 is one of the most heart-wrenching graphic descriptions of the crucifixion of Christ. I'd encourage you to read it this week. In chapter 53, verse 12, he prophesied that the Christ would pour out his soul to death and would be numbered with the transgressors. And here stands Jesus, the sinless one, Numbered with the sinners. Just like God's word said he would. The place where they were taken is known by many names. Um, in Aramaic, it's called Golgotha. In Latin, it's known as Calvary. But here, Luke simply calls it the place that is called the skull. The deathly image itself is a symbol of what would soon happen to our Lord as he was crucified crucified. The prophet Zechariah alluded to the piercing crucifixion of Jesus, of the Messiah in his book. He wrote in Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
Jesus himself had also predicted, prophesied his death by crucifixion, even right here in the Gospel of Luke. If you turn back and look at chapter 9, verse 22, there Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes. These are the people standing at the foot of the cross right now. And be killed. And then on the third day be raised. That's what Jesus says. And then the very next words that Luke records out of his mouth are this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? Cross. Jesus connects right there in Luke 9 the reality of his upcoming death with the language of the cross. None of the gospel writers fill in much detail about the act of the crucifixion. It seems none of them are too concerned with these gruesome details, but each of them record the scandal of the death of Jesus by crucifixion as was foretold. Again, the criminals are mentioned alongside Christ as they are lifted up into the air, one on his left, one on his right. In verse 34, those uh, below in the shadow of the Savior uh, cast lots for Jesus' clothing. They gamble to see who gets what of what Jesus was wearing when it's all said and done. And even this small act is a clear reference to Psalm 22, verse 18, where the singer of Israel first wrote, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Next, they pour sour wine. This is not an act of kindness for Christ. This was an act um, mixed with mocking. The soldiers offer Jesus this wine vinegar to prolong his suffering. And surely they have no idea that as they seek to humiliate this man, that they are fulfilling Psalm 69, 21, which says, And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. You see all of that? We've been in the Old Testament for a long time now. And here we are in the New Testament and the same story told. In all of these things, the act of crucifixion, being counted with the criminals, and having his clothes gambled on, being offered sour wine in every act foretold, every suffering ordained, all prove that Jesus was the promised one of old. Jesus is the promise kept of all God's promises made. There's the Old Testament. And look how he wants us to see Jesus. Luke wants us to understand the identity of the man on the middle cross. So what he does in this little scene is he reports all of these truths spoken by the enemies of Christ. And through their false accusations and mockery, he teaches us, his readers. That's what he's doing. Let's not miss these three titles that are used in this passage. They teach us of the identity of the man. First, Jesus is the Christ. This news was first heralded by angels. Outside of Bethlehem to a group of shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. Christ. And now here at the, in his final moments, Luke uses the same word. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. This title pointed to the person who God would raise up from among his people to save them, to deliver them, and to bring them perfect peace. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is also the Savior. Three times the religious leaders look at him and, and shower ridicule upon him, saying he should save himself. Notice in verse 35 this interesting confession. He saved others, let him save himself. He saved others. They surely knew the accounts, the miraculous accounts of how this man from Nazareth had raised to life his friend Lazarus and this little girl named Talitha, bringing them to life again. If he had the power to do that, surely he could save himself now. Of course, you and I reading this today realize the irony of these taunting words because it's not Saving, in saving himself, that Jesus would save his people. It's precisely because Jesus is the Savior that he must die to fulfill the Scriptures, to satisfy the wrath of God, and to bring salvation. So instead of um, saving himself, Jesus saves others. Even here you see his heart extending forgiveness. What a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The prayer of Christ is answered in his own death, which brings about the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus is the King. This title of King is attributed both in the verbal assault of the people and also in this plaque that hangs above his head. Oftentimes, uh, that plaque was hung around the neck of a person who would, were uh, forced to walk through town on the way to their own execution, through public, announcing the reason silently through this sign, why it is they were dying, what it is they were guilty of. And when they reached the end of that walk, that placard was nailed to the top of the cross to continue to announce what they had done wrong. But in Jesus' case... No wrong was pinned on him. Pilate simply wrote, he was the king of the Jews. That was debated. Some of the other gospels tell us. But this is what he wrote. He was the king of the Jews. So Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the savior that was long foretold. And Jesus is the king. As we think about this scene, let's realize this is not the story of some common criminal dying on a typical Friday afternoon. Here hangs the one who hung the stars in place. Here a cross holds the one who holds all of creation together. Jesus was not just a man. He was the God-man, the King of kings. And Jesus was not dying a common death. He was dying to bring the death of death and to bring life to all who would call upon his name. So I said my goal is just to, for us to think about Christ together, to magnify him in our thinking. So our applications today are just very simple. 
to thank the Lord for the gift of his word through which we know Jesus. That's it. Luke presents the Bible to us in telling the story of Christ and in doing show, so shows how the whole story of Scripture points to Jesus. His the story and his the glory. Jesus is the one, the promised one who was long foretold. And the second truth I want to place before us is that the man on the middle cross is the saving son of God. As Jesus hung between these two men, he finished the work he came to do. And this is just so amazing. Even in his final breath, took one more person home with him. Perhaps the main theme of the Gospel of Luke is the word salvation. The saving of men and women by Jesus the Savior. And so it's not surprising to see at the climax of the story. This is the very hinge of all of history that is about to swing wide here. And we see Jesus offering and winning salvation for sinners. The final moments of these two criminal lives, criminals' lives, could not be more radically different. There were two criminals. The story of one is very short. The story of one is drawn out a bit. J.C. Ryle pointed out, the same man hung between them, the Savior of the world. Yet the gospel was hidden to one man, And revealed to another. One man is brought to life while the other dies in his sins. One man hears the prayer of Christ to forgive and he tunes it out while the other man's ears are opened. One curses the Savior while the other calls on him. So, how is it that one man passed from death to life? How did that happen? There's only one answer. Jesus did it all. Jesus saved him. Remarkably. Let's look at how. Notice, first, the man acknowledges his sin. He admits he is receiving the due rewards of his deeds. That's what he calls it. The due rewards of his deeds. Sounds a lot like Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death. He earned this death. And he simply admits he's getting what he deserved. He's dying in his sins. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 also says if we confess our sins... That God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us, rinse us in the blood of Christ and make us clean. He admits that he has sinned. And next, look at his confession of Christ. He says, this man has done nothing. Now, the thief dying at Jesus' side never wrote a book on Christology, on the perfections of Christ. This is all he says. But this sentence says a whole lot. The man had seen the meekness of Christ as he was willingly punished and led to the cross. He heard the voice of Jesus with his own ears offer forgiveness to the people that were mocking him, beating him, even executing him. Then he overheard a prayer prayed by Jesus as he addressed God as Father. And he looked over at the man in the middle and realized how different his life was 
than his own as they both approached the same death. And at some point, his blind eyes were opened to who Jesus was. He believed that he could ask him this audacious request. Look, he calls upon Christ and prays, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Oh, and right there we see that this man knew that Jesus was in fact a king, that the accusations were right, and that death was not the end. He expects something's going to happen on the other side of death, that Jesus was the doorway to the everlasting kingdom of God. Perhaps between his final breath, Jesus explained this to him. Maybe he was there on the mountain when Jesus taught, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We don't know. But what we do know is that in the brightness of this moment, this criminal saw true two truths. His guilt and Jesus. That's what he saw. He was a great sinner And Christ was a great Savior. And Jesus said to him, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh my goodness. I've just, I've had that phrase turning over in my mind all week. I love this phrase. Today, today, there's um, an immediacy to the presence of God in death, there's no such thing as purgatory. There's no in-between trying to earn our way out of death after death. Today, there's an immediacy. If he's absent with the body, he's present with the Lord. That's to borrow the language of the apostle Paul. And notice the joy after death. You will be with me. Isn't this the very reason that Jesus came? To seek and save the lost so that they would be with him drawn close to him. The presence of Christ is the great reward of his people. He is the heaven of heaven. And it's his presence that awaits all of us who are in Christ. And we will always be with the Lord. In paradise. Now, the root word for that is the same that we get the Garden of Eden from. That word paradise is used synonymously with heaven and even the kingdom It's what all of creation is groaning for. This is what you and I were made for, to be in the presence of God in paradise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, um, says, Therefore the Lord God sent him, he's talking about Adam, out of the garden of Eden. All right, So people are removed from the presence of God, from the paradise of God. Here in Luke 23, 43, he says, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I read John Milton's Paradise Lost sometime, oh, in the last month or so, and I've just had that thought of paradise in my thinking. Here I think what we find is that paradise lost through the sin of man, paradise won through the Son of Man. And Christ has done it all. How remarkable is this story? What a, what a thought to hang our thinking on as we begin Holy Week together. Jesus' mercy toward this thief. Yet, the account of the thief on the cross 
It's not about a thief who was good enough to become a follower of Christ. It's really not about the thief at all. It's about the goodness and salvation of Jesus. That's what we've got to see in this. Yes, how remarkable the mercy of Jesus to this man who did not deserve it. But isn't that the story of all of us? But here we see the saving power of Jesus. So um, Alistair Begg imagines meeting this man in heaven one day. And this is how he describes uh, the conversation he wants to have. So he says, think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to find that fellow one day. And say, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been to a Bible study. You've never been baptized. You don't know a thing about church membership. And yet you made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know. What, what are you doing here? And the guy says, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. And the angel pauses, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. And so he goes and gets a supervisor and comes back. This is all made up. This is not how it really works, by the way. So. <clears throat> so just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, never heard of it my whole life. What about the doctrine of Scripture? And the guy just looks at him. And then in frustration, the angel asks him, on what basis are you here? And this guy says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. And that's the only answer. The man on the middle cross said, I could come. So who is the man on the middle cross to you? It would do our hearts really well this week to thank the Lord for his mercy toward us and just um, unravel our best attempt to clothe for ourselves any kind of defense of our righteousness and to just leave all of our works, both the good and the bad, behind and stand before a holy God by faith alone, in Christ alone. And for our hearts to be full of thanksgiving for what he's done. For those of us who've been saved, let us remember it was not because of our rule following or the smallest good work, but by faith alone, in Christ alone that we've been saved. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in that day. And there may I, though vile, as he wash all my sins away. What a gift. Our salvation is what we have to be thankful for. And I've just got to just make this gospel call to any of you who are outside of Christ. There were two men in this story. One that trusted in Christ by faith and the other rejected him. And perhaps you've rejected Christ and turned from him. And every one of your sin is an attempt to make war with God. Or you feel like you, you can't come to him because of the things that you've done. Well, what did the thief who'd come to Christ, what had he done? Nothing to merit anything. But he came to Christ and was cleansed. And you can be too.
The Bible says that if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Who is that talking to? Romans 10, 13 says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Don't die and be separated from God forever in a real place called hell. Turn and repent and come with us to paradise, a paradise that none of us deserve, but that Christ has earned for us, that he has brought to us. Well, even in the final moments before his death, Christ fulfills God's promises from the Old Testament while at the same time demonstrates his heart to save sinners. So let me encourage you through Holy Week just to turn over in your mind again and again the identity of this man on the middle cross and the importance of what his death means to you. These two things are absolutely clear and absolutely true. Jesus is the promised one of old and Jesus is the saving son of God. This is the man on the middle cross. Let's pray. Father, I mean, you've, you've given us so much to be thankful for. Salvation so freely given costs us nothing, costs you everything. And so we make no other argument. We need no other plea. It is enough for us that Christ has died. He stood in our place, receiving the punishment that we deserved And what we're offered is everything that Christ has deserved. Life, salvation, paradise. We thank you for this. Let our eyes be open to see you. Both today and until the day when our faith becomes sight. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.